Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. Um, we are in Acts chapter 23. So let's turn there. Let's get there. Who doesn't love a good uh, conspiracy theory, right? They're fun. They're fun. Um, conspiracy theories. So if you, if you turn on um, the radio late at night, there's like, a, there's like a... Who listens to the radio? Anybody do that anymore? No, okay. So that's... That's a thing. But there's podcasts and radio shows. There's, there's so many shows devoted to different conspiracy theories. The most popular and most famous conspiracy theory, I think, the most prolific conspiracy theory, is the one about the lizard people. The lizard. Yeah, who knows about the lizard people? The reptilian takeover. Yeah? So as, so as far as I can tell... Right? Uh, the, the narrative is that reptilian aliens are, are uh, making a move to uh, take over the world uh, one leader at a time, right? So, so uh, these are shape shifting reptilians. And so, what we don't know as, you know, uh, clueless average human beings, we don't know that um, among us live these reptilians that are shape-shifting. And um, so uh, according to the theory, and Nick Hatton, (laughs) many world leaders are possessed by these so-called reptilians. And so here's the crazy thing about it. According to a 2013 poll, like at the height of this, this conspiracy theory, Uh, 4% of American voters believed in the reptilian theory. It's incredible. Many of them have since recanted (laughs) such theories. I I really do believe at one point Nick had some suspicions about the reptilians. (laughs) (laughs) Nick and Joe Rogan both had their suspicions. Um... But man, there, there are tons of great conspiracy theories, most of which are fairly harmless uh, to the average thinking person. Uh, they're, they're fairly harmless. But uh, the crazy thing, thing is that, that somewhere at the root of every conspiracy is a desire to create chaos, sabotage, and entrapment. At the heart of every conspiracy theory, and, and all conspiracy theories have this primary objective to create chaos and entrap people. And so this is going to sound insane to you, but three days ago, uh, the FBI reported that last week uh, a father killed his two children because he was convinced that they were lizard people. Isn't that incredible to think? Um, And so I don't want to make make light of that, but man, uh, people are convinced of things that are pretty incredible. They, They do get entrapped by conspiracy. Um... Now, most of us won't ever fall prey to the trappings of this type of conspiracy theory, and and maybe you won't ever go as far as joining a UFO religion, you know, a cult of some sort, but but it's important to know that you do have an enemy that is actively conspiring against you. That is critical to know as Christians. And today we're going to see Paul navigate a very real conspiracy that was at work against him. And we're going to discuss what it means to acknowledge the conspirators that surround us and our lives and discuss what it means to humbly trust the Lord to help us navigate situations that seem to be outside of our control. Okay, you guys with me? Let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We're grateful uh, for the time that we have to be in your word. And so uh, I think it is fitting, Lord, that, that as we enter into prayer today, and as we open your book, uh, that we pray for your help, because there really isn't anything that we can do in our flesh uh, to become the people that we need to become. 
And our mind is weak, our flesh is weak, our heart is weak, we're fickle in almost every way. And we do fall prey to lies, we do fall prey to entrapment constantly. And our eyes just aren't open to the fact that the enemy surrounds us. And so we get tricked. And I know that, Lord, today that there are people in this room right now that have been tricked, that they've fallen, they've fallen prey to lies that uh, the enemy has conspired against them and, and they unwillingly stepped into the trap and they find themselves there even now. And so God, we ask for your help today that you would deliver us from the bondage of lies, that you would help us to see spiritual warfare for what it truly is, and God, that you would open our hearts and minds to the truth of who you are, that we might rely on the blood of Jesus Christ to survive, to navigate this life and to become everything that we need to be in you. So God, help us and be with us today as we open your word and teach us exactly what we need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, last time we saw Paul, uh, he was standing under the judgment of the Sanhedrin. Remember that? He was facing their accusations. And when Paul discovered the level of hostility that they had towards him, he made a very timely comment about their theology. Remember this, how the, the story ends? So here's Paul standing before his accusers, and they're gathered around him, and they're ready to make accusations against him. Uh, they, had their, they had their reasons to be angry at him. They were convinced that he was speaking ill of Moses and the traditions uh, of the Jewish people, and they were very concerned about that. And so they, they had him cornered as the chief captain of the Roman uh, army in Jerusalem stood by watching, hoping that there would be some sort of revelation about why they were so upset because Rome had no idea. They didn't have any understanding of these Jewish issues. And so he's watching. And, uh, and so Paul, he's, he's very smart. He drops in this comment about the resurrection. And he knew that that would divide the crowd. And so you have the, the two different sects, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They decide to, to go head-to-head and toe-to-toe in that moment. The crowd is divided. And suddenly uh, Paul uh, finds himself able to escape their scrutiny that day. And the chief captain delivers him from their midst, and, and they take him to his prison cell, which is where we find him now. And that night in his prison cell, if you remember from the last time we were together, Christ visits Paul in person and makes a very important promise to him. You guys remember that? He makes a promise to him. It goes like this in verse 11 of chapter 23. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer. Paul, for thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so thou, uh, must thou bear witness also at Rome. So Christ says to him, he says, look, Paul, you shouldn't be troubled. You're not going to die today. You're not going to die tomorrow. You're not going to die here in Jerusalem at all. I'm going to deliver you to Rome, just as we had talked about. Now this promise that Jesus gives him is the background information that we need for today's sermon. Okay, this is the promise this is the thing that Paul is relying on to get him through the situation that he's about to face. So let's uh, go ahead and continue reading in verse 12. And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And they were more than 40 which had made this conspiracy. And there's our little special word for the day. Upon first glance, you might look at this story and say to yourself, okay, these guys have gathered themselves together, and they're about to enter into some sort of fast, like a, a protest, a fast, some sort of uh, eating strike. But that's not actually what's happening here. This isn't a hunger strike. Uh, that's way too passive of a protest for these men. No, these conspirators have made an oath between one another that none of them would eat or drink until they've killed Paul. It's a pact that they made to ensure their devotion to their cause. And so when we say conspiracy, what we mean is the collaboration of persons for a secret, unlawful, or evil purpose. And they had an evil purpose in their heart. They had a cause, and they had committed themselves in a, in a collaboration, in a collective, a collective of individuals. They've committed themselves to a particular work to see their secrecy come into effect. They wanted Paul's life. He was their enemy. And they were going to do anything to make sure that he saw his end. These men had made themselves a very serious enemy of Paul. 
And I think this story is a good reminder that we, just like Paul, find ourselves caught up in the midst of a conspiracy. We as believers find ourselves dead center in the middle of a conspiratorial work that pre-exists us by millennia, that's existed since the beginning of time itself. There is a grand conspirator who leads an unlawful rebellion against God, and his name is Satan. And Satan is very real. Now, people don't want to believe in Satan anymore. It's not popular to believe in Satan, right? Even Christians avoid talking about this very real enemy. They make light of him. They want to talk about God, and they want to talk about his invisible power, and they want to talk about his eternal glory, but they don't want to talk about Satan and his power and his ends. They want to make light of it. They're afraid that they'll sound strange for talking about him. But Satan is real. And he is that heinous individual who leads legions of fallen angels in revolt against God and his kingdom. And our enemy, we must know, has a cause. He has an active plot to undermine God's future plans to redeem the universe and set up his kingdom afresh. And everything he does and every thought he has works to those ends. And this is how he's always been. His conspiracy pre-exists the creation of this earth. And we know from Isaiah chapter 14 that, that once upon a time, that Lucifer, Satan, was working in rebellion against God to undermine him in the kingdom that pre-existed the future. God had established in the universe his kingdom, his glory. He had constructed a situation that was was intended to only bring him glory and honor. And Satan worked against that to undermine it. Conspiracy is in Satan's very nature. And according to John chapter 8, verse 44, he is the father of all lies. Satan employs this world's system to constantly be at work against the kingdom of God. And as many of you know, that Satan himself has two other arms, the world and our flesh. And if you know uh, about Scripture and you know the story of Adam and Eve, that that in, in terms of the scriptural narrative of who Satan is, we find him in Genesis chapter 3 as a serpent who's sowing seeds of lies that he might cause Adam and Eve to sin. And the day that they partook of that tree... And they invited sin into the world. That sin passed upon to every one of their offspring, even till today. And in that very moment, Satan found himself with two more allies besides the devilish host. And that is the world system, the world system and the, and the flesh of mankind. And those two things work in tandem with Satan's agenda in order to achieve his will. John chapter 15, verse 19 says... If ye were of the world, this is Christ speaking to his disciples, if ye were of the world, the world would love his own. In other words, the world has a love. The system of the world has a love, and that love is only for those who find themselves lost in their sin. The world would love his own, but because ye are not of the world, in other words, you've broken free from its system through salvation, you found yourself set free. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. The world itself is an enemy to every person that calls themselves Christian. And you've got to know that. You've got to know that for 6,000 years... Satan himself has been building and establishing conspiracy against the believers in this world that we might not be the thing that God has intended us to be. He wants to undermine God's worship. He wants to undermine God's the evangelism and the spreading of the gospel. He wants to undermine the work of discipleship in this world. And anything that would cause the message of Jesus Christ to spread, he is working actively against that. And he is establishing a system to undermine it. And it may look like politics. 
It may look like public education. It may look like cultural phenomenon. It might look like the music that we listen to or the movies that we watch. It might, it might be the, the things that your family members say, the people that you know, the people that you grew up with, the things that, that they believe. No, Satan has his tendrils deep inside this world system. And it is not a theory, Christian. It is not some made-up idea. It is something that, that if people are honest with themselves, even the lost know this to be true. That there is good and evil at work in this world. And Satan has absolutely created a worldly system that works against the kingdom of God. Now, not only that, but he also employs the flesh of man. 1 John 2.15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So that's a reiteration of what we were just talking about, correct? But listen, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So beyond that, because of the, the fall of mankind and the choice for Adam and Eve to sin, just like Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, sin was passed upon to all men, and our tendency, our tendency, even as believers, is to do according to the flesh, to obey the ways of our flesh. And when we, and when we do that, that's only disobedience to God. And so Satan, very cleverly, has used the world to entice our flesh and to cause us to lust and to cause us to have pride and to cause us to do things that we ought not do. And every person in this room, whether you're a Christian or you're a lost person, you don't, even, you don't know what you believe or, or, or you, maybe you don't believe anything that I'm saying right now. Regardless of where you stand, you are built in such a way, your flesh is built in such a way to tell you to only be selfish all the time. To only do according to what you think is best. And it's only through the power of the Spirit of God that a believer has the ability to contradict their fleshly ways. To overcome the ways of the wicked one. Only through the power of God's Spirit do we have authority over the lies of our flesh and the lies of this world and the devilish ways in which Satan has, has enticed us and entrapped us. And so here's what we need to remember about our enemy, and this is key point number one. Our enemy is unified, highly organized, and zealously committed. Our enemy is unified, highly organized, and zealously committed. And so here's the thing, though. We oftentimes forget to think about our enemy. We, we convince ourselves that he's actually, we can't see him. We don't see him at work overtly. We don't consider his ways. And so he kind of falls into the background of our thoughts. And in the way that we live practically from day to day, we pretend as though he doesn't even exist. But listen to me. Don't be tricked. Just like those men who strove against Paul were so serious about their cause that they bound themselves together by a curse, a curse to silence Paul, our enemy has bound themselves together in a curse to silence us. And knowing that, I want to discuss just how personal this conspiracy can be. And I think in 2021, Christians think, Christians think of conspiracies as being very impersonal. Right? We talk about the lizard people, and we think to ourselves that this is some just silly notion. It's some sort of abstract narrative. It doesn't have any real roots in reality. And so we just, we just dismiss it the way we dismiss lots of other strange conspiratorial theories that we hear about from day to day. Someone's always rattling something off about Thor, right? Or like, you know, you know Zeus or 
flat earth or whatever it may be. There's always a flavor of the week, right? And we dismiss these things, right? But I want to say something to you. The Christians are in danger of seeing the spiritual enemy that surrounds us as distant and abstract and actually unconcerned with us. I think that when we think of Satan, we think, well, that he's, he's unconcerned with Brandon Briscoe. He's unconcerned with you. He's got other fish to fry, right? He's got other things up his sleeve. And so we don't really think about him working actively against us. But here we have an example of how a group of people whose primary objective was silencing one man, right? We see them at work to keep one man quiet. And the same thing is true. And I, I believe that that's a pretty personal conviction that they have. I think Paul could say to himself, well, that's really personal. These, these 40 or so men, they want to see me dead of all people. They want to silence my mouth. I think that that's a pretty personal agenda. And I want to say to you that Satan has an agenda. Now, he might not himself be thinking a whole lot about David or Anna or Nick. He might not have you on his mind, but I'll tell you this, his legions do and his system does. And he set things up in such a way that he wants to see you personally fall. He wants to impact your life. He wants to keep you from speaking the truth of the gospel. And I want to point this out through Ephesians chapter 6. Listen to what it says in Ephesians 6.12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Okay, we read that and we think to ourselves, okay, that's that abstract, isn't it? That's that distant enemy, you know, principalities and powers of darkness, right? Seems like, like a movie or something, right? That seems distant and, and, and ethereal, right? It's not tangibly a part of my life. It's we could say to ourselves, we could continue to tell ourselves a lie, that this really, you know, I know that we don't wrestle against these things, uh, against our flesh, and I know that these things are real, but that seems really distant to me. But read verse 13. Look at the admonition. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. See, that big and abstract enemy demands you prepare. So he might seem big and ominous and far away. But the admonition for our lives is to prepare because Satan himself has a plan for your life. So you ought to prepare because it is personal. It is personal. And that leads us to our next key point. If you preach Christ, then conspiracy is closer than you think. If you preach the message of Jesus Christ, then, then conspiracy is much closer than you might think that it is. And this is not me being overly paranoid. This is not me inflating my significance or your significance. This is a fact of our faith. The enemy is seeking to silence all those who preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is his agenda. And at whatever level you participate in that agenda, he is seeking and plotting against you. you. You don't have to believe that. Okay? That might be as crazy as the lizard people to you. I'm just telling you that it's biblically true. Which is why Peter warns us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He says, Be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, seeketh, or, or walketh about seeking whom he may devour. That's not just his agenda in the world. That's his agenda for you, which is why Peter is telling you to be sober. He's telling you to be vigilant. Because we need to prepare our hearts and mind for an adversary who desires for us to fall. 
Now, if you're a Christian in name only, right, and you're nominal in your beliefs, and you, you may call yourself Christian, but you don't actively participate in the work of preaching the gospel. If, 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 if your life isn't devoted to making the name of Jesus Christ known, then, then I want to say to you, you're in luck. Because the enemy doesn't care about you. And maybe this will come to, uh, as a relief to you. I don't know. There's, there's, you've given Satan very little reason to be concerned with you because of your behavior, because of your choices, because even though you call yourself Christian, the reality of your faith is nowhere to be seen because you're not mission-minded. He has little concern with you. And other than maybe getting caught in, in the line of fire from time to time, Satan has no plot and no conspiracy for you. But for those of you who've aligned yourselves fully with the cause of Christ, I want to say to you, I want to say to you this. It's actually an amazing prospect that we might be able to suffer the way that Jesus Christ did. The way that Paul did, the way that Peter did. It's an amazing prospect. It's an amazing thought that we are participants in a long lineage of those who, despite the working of the world and despite our flesh and despite the lies that exist all around us, we've chosen to follow Jesus Christ and to speak his message. Do we get to participate in the fellowship of sufferings and the heritage that so many other believers have been able to participate in throughout time? Do we get to call ourselves a part of the few who get to suffer for Christ? Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. If you will tell me when God permits a Christian to lay aside his armor, I will tell you when Satan has left off temptation. Like the old knights in wartime, we, we as Christians, must sleep with helmet and breastplate buckled on. For the arch deceiver will seize our first unguarded hour to make us his prey. The Lord keeps us watchful in all season and, give, and gives us a, a final escape from the jaw of the lion and the paw of the bear. See, here's the deal. The moment the Christian decides to fall asleep on their job, is the moment that actually Satan is not concerned with you whatsoever. You are defunct. And here's the thing, though. Too many Christians are asleep on the job. Too many believers. Now listen to me. We want to talk about that as being other people and other churches and, 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 and Christians that aren't as serious about evangelism as us or Christians that, that, that aren't as serious about discipleship as us. And, and we want to point the finger and assume that that's somewhere else in some other camp that the believers are falling asleep. But I want to say to you, Kaya, that many of us have a real strong case of narcolepsy. That even though we desire to keep our eyes open and to be focused and to be prepared, that many of us from day to day are falling asleep. We fall asleep and then we catch ourselves and we wake up and we pretend that we're back on guard. But then we fall asleep again, and it's this cycle over and over again. And we aren't prepared, and we, the, the breastplate of righteousness is not put on. And we are, we are not established as a soldier in the whole armor of God. And I want to tell you that you might be more susceptible than you think you are. Because, you know, listen to me, it's, it's really... It's not, it's not the soldier who sleeps as their occupation that's a concern. 
But it's extremely dangerous to be a believer who's a sometimes off-again, on-again, off-again believer. That's a dangerous position to put yourself in. Because you're pretending as though you're equipped and you're really not. No, we need to be fully aware that the enemy has his eyes on us. And we have to pray that the Lord would keep us, keep us watchful and protect us from the jaw of the lion. We must take the responsibility seriously through prayer, wise decision-making, and humble reliance on God, which leads us to this next focus that I want to point out, and that's this, that we are actually very helpless without God. See, you can't conjure the strength necessary to defend yourself against the enemy. You can't do that. No, we need God. Now let's look at the rest of our story. Verse 14, and talking about these men, and they came to the chief priests and the elders. In other words, they, these men, these conspirators, they came before the Sanhedrin. And they said, we've bound ourselves under a great curse that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. Now therefore, ye, with the council, signify to the chief captain that he bring him down unto you tomorrow as though ye would inquire something more perfectly concerning him. And we, or ever he, uh, or ever he here come, uh, come near, are ready to kill him. So the idea is that, that some of these leaders from the Sanhedrin would go to the chief captain and they'd say, hey, I know things were real crazy yesterday. We apologize. But we really didn't get a chance to, to grill Paul the way we wanted to. We have a lot more questions for him, and we were asking, we want a request of you, that you would bring him before us once again, that we might be able to actually proper, properly accuse him of the things that we hold against him. And that's the idea, is that when they do that, the chief captain would comply, and that he would bring Paul before him once again, and in that moment, these 40 men who took this vow will be standing in the way ready to kill Paul. That's the plan. Now pay close attention, because as we continue to read this story, what's important to know is that our man Paul has no power over his situation. None. He has no power. He is helpless in the hand of his enemies. And everything that happens from here to the end of the story is purely and entirely in the hands of God. Verse 16. And when Paul's sister's son heard of their lying in wait, he went and entered into the castle and told Paul. Now, the first thing, if you're anything like me, when you hear that, it's like, Paul's sister, what? Right? Paul's sister and, and his nephew enter into this story. Now, this is the only time we'll ever hear about them. But you kind of think of Paul as like being completely, like he, he doesn't have, have family. Paul's just a normal dude, right? Right? Paul's just a dude. And he's got family. And apparently, his family lives here in Jerusalem. And they perhaps would have moved here when Paul came to do his studies once upon a time when he was a young boy. His family probably moved to Jerusalem so, he, so that he could get the education that he needed. And so his sister is there and her son and they, and they heard, someone's looking up the Greek word of something. I can hear them <laughs> over there. I appreciate the study. They needed, someone needed the pronunciation on some sort of Greek. <laughs> I've done that before, actually. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to call you out. Um, so so the, the, this young boy overhears the conspiracy of these men. All right? He overhears it. Then Paul called one of the centurions unto him and said, bring this young man under the chief captain. So the, the, his nephew came and reported to Paul and said, hey, look, I overheard that there's these guys and they're, they're, they're wanting to kill you. And so he, he, Paul gets one of the centurions, one of these Roman soldiers, and says, hey, you need to deliver this young boy, my nephew, to the chief captain. He has something to share with them. If we have a certain, uh, a certain thing to tell them, to tell him. So he, so he took him and brought him to the chief captain and said, Paul, the prisoner called me unto him and prayed me to bring this young man unto thee who has something to say unto thee. Then the chief captain took, uh, took him by the hand 
Uh, you imagine this like chief captain with this little boy. It's just like a cute scene. Maybe it's the dad and me. But he's like, okay, let's go. Let's go talk. I don't know how old this kid is. But I imagine him to be like Shepherd, like he's nine or something. He's probably not. Because nine, a nine-year-old would have no clue what's going on. Shepherd would have no idea. <laughs> you know, whatever. So, um, what is it that thou hast to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to desire thee that thou wouldest bring down Paul tomorrow into the council as though they would inquire something of him more perfectly. But do not thou yield unto them. For, they, for there lie in wait for him of them more than 40 men, which have bound themselves with an oath that they will eat, neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now are they ready, looking for a promise from thee. So the chief captain then let the young man depart and charged him, see thou, tell no man that thou hast showed these things to me. He said, be quiet, don't tell anybody else about this. And he called unto him the two centurions, saying, make ready 200 soldiers, to go to Caesarea, and horsemen threescore and ten, and spearmen two hundred, at the third at the third hour of the night, and provide them beasts that they may see Paul or set Paul on, and bring him safe unto Felix the governor. Pretty amazing, right? That the chief captain that recognizes, look, we can't have this kind of chaos in in, in my city, right? We're not going to let anybody undermine the authority of Rome this way. Let's get 200 soldiers to gather around Paul and deliver him by night to make sure he gets to Caesarea safely. Pretty amazing. Now listen, I, I want to point this out to you, and I think it's, it's super critical that we understand, and it's the other major thing that I want to focus on in, in the message today, is that Paul may have been completely helpless, and he may have had no power over his situation, but what he did have were the promises of God. Remember in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, how the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. See, despite Paul's poor judgment in going to Jerusalem, remember, the Holy Spirit said, Don't go, right? So he was there on the like wrong pretense to begin with. He should have never been in Jerusalem. He should have never found himself in this situation. So despite Paul's poor judgment in going to Jerusalem, despite the fact that he had made a serious mistake in ignoring God's warnings to him, God doesn't throw Paul away or tell him, uh, you know, best of luck, buddy. I hope it works out for you. No, God hasn't abandoned Paul. And Jesus himself tells him, I'm not done with you. Be of good cheer. I'm with you. Let's go. So despite Paul's helpless estate, he had the promise that God was going to be with him, and that's all he needed. God would take care of the rest. God would take care of the details. God would work out those difficult things that he didn't understand. And it reminds me of Mark chapter 6, verse 49. I know you guys have been in Mark, and, and probably you're really familiar with this story about the disciples out on the Sea of Galilee, yeah? Remember that? And remember that the storm had, they're out there fishing, and the storm had picked up, and, and the boat was kind of out of control, and they couldn't get control of the, of the boat no matter how, how hard they rowed. They couldn't get things under control. Verse 49 says, But when they saw him walking upon the seas, that's that being Jesus, they supposed it had been a spirit and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. So they're, they're crying and they're weeping and they're freaking out. And, they said, and they're troubled in their spirit. And immediately he talked with them and saith unto them, be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. So in the midst of the storm and in the midst of the situation that we can't control, Jesus is faithful to say, Hey, be not troubled. Be not afraid. I am here. Be of good cheer. You know, also in Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus is commissioning his disciples, he says to them, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always even unto the end of the world 
Amen. There's never more great a promise than to know that Jesus Christ himself stands with us. And it's that promise that makes it okay to acknowledge that we are helpless and the only thing that we can do is surrender. See, it's the moment moment that you know that Jesus says, I'm with you. Don't worry about it. It's in that moment that we can stop lying to ourselves that we need to have control of our situation, that we need to have it figured out, that we need to have an answer for this or for that or for this temptation or for that trial. See, that's the moment that in our flesh we can stop conspiring and we can let go of all of our conspiracies and all of our answers And all of our solutions for our problems, we can let go and say, Christ has it. He's got it under control. I can let go of of this situation. Paul can't do anything. He can only just sit in his prison cell and wait on God. It's the only thing that he can do. He can't reason his way out of it. I mean, we all know that Paul is very smart, right? And if anybody could reason themselves out of a situation, that would be Paul. He can't reason himself out of it. He can't escape from it. But in his helplessness, he's at his very strongest. Key point number three. God wants to put us in a position where we can only trust in him. We're not really any different than Paul in his prison cell. I mean, what can you do to defend yourself against the power and the temptation of Satan? I mean, what can you really do? You can't do anything. You can't do anything against the enemy. You don't have any strength to protect yourself against the wiles of the devil. It's not in our flesh, and it's not in our planning. See, Paul was in one of those situations. He needed God, and God was faithful to provide everything Paul needed to escape the short arm of the enemy. What did he do? Let's talk about what he did. First of all, This nephew that we've never heard from in any of the stories just happened to be in listening ear, like in in listening distance of the enemy's plan and plot. He just happened to be there. And this kid is probably nine and stupid, right? And and, And he probably has the memory of like a fly, right? He, he, he probably, but listen, he rehearses perfectly the plot of the enemy to both Paul and to the chief captain. This stupid little kid just happened to be in the right place at the right time, and then he could, like, verbatim recite what they said. Mm, or God had a hand in it. God put that little boy in a situation where he could hear this And he could remember it. And that it was important to him. So important that he made sure the right people heard it. And not only that, the chief captain, who has no reason to care anything about Paul, the chief captain displays grace and the wherewithal to protect Paul and get him out of harm's way. Not only that, he sets a guard of 200 men plus, you know, all the military might that he can spare to make sure that Paul gets to Caesarea. You think that that's just some coincidence? You think that that's how they treat every prisoner? No, God is at work in Paul's situation. Paul has no control, and he has no answers, and he has no strength, and he can't deliver himself from the situation. He's only just helpless, and yet God comes to defend him in his weakest moment. This was God all the way. Psalm 33, 20 says, Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. And so here's the deal. I wonder if Kaya knows how to be helpless like this. You know, the thing about being young and full of strength and life and vigor is that you're going to always have the tendency to use your flesh to answer any enticement, entrapment, chaos, confusion that Satan puts before you. 
you're going to think that you can reason your way out of it, that you're going to have a scheme or a plot or a decision that you can put into effect that's going to protect you somehow from the enemy. And, and maybe, again, maybe I'm being too abstract. Let's make it really real. What about the way that people treat you? What about the way that your family thinks about what you believe? What about the way you witness on your campus or in your workplace and you can't seem to get any traction? What about the cancer of a family member? What what about the situations that not even the doctors or the experts have answers for? See, you can do nothing. But God can do everything. And I wonder sometimes, I wonder just how helpless we are. Can Kaya be so helpless before the Lord that we can actually entrust him with everything? See, one of my greatest fears is that Kaya would be so excited so zealous, so focused, so consistent, and yet never understand the power of true humility and brokenness and helplessness before God. That we're going to try to go and we're going to try to do everything according to our flesh and our strength, and we're going to do something for God. And we mean well, and we're well-intentioned, and we're in the book, and, and, and we're, we're doing all the right things, and we do those things with consistency and zeal, and yet, all the while, we've, we've lied to ourselves that somehow we're doing it. Now, listen to me. When we say that our objective is to win Kansas City for Christ, What we really mean is that we don't know how to do anything and that Jesus Christ is somehow going to make a way for us to reach every single soul for his glory and his glory alone. That's what we mean. And it's what we need. And if we're trusting God to plant churches all over the world, That's only a work that he can do. And we have got to learn how to let go and to yield and surrender to the one that has the true power. That's what we need to do. You don't have a solution. Like like right now in your mind, name the thing that you're up against that you, you don't have an answer for. Name it. Listen, God has a solution for that. And he's with you. And he's walking with you. And he loves you. And he adores you. And he wants to make a way where there doesn't seem to be a way. Now listen to me, beyond that, beyond the fact that we need to be absolutely helpless, I don't want to give anything away here, but in in Acts chapter 26, Paul finds himself talking to King Agrippa. I love this story. I can't wait to get there. I can't wait to preach through this chapter. But he finds himself talking to King Agrippa And he rehearses this story from Acts chapter 23 before King Agrippa. And I want to point out how he talks about it. In Acts chapter 26, verse 21, he says to King Agrippa, he says, For these causes, the Jews caught me in the temple. Remember, that's how this whole thing started. The Jews caught him in the temple, and they went about to kill me. Now listen to me, verse 22. Having therefore obtained help of God... I continue unto this day witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those things which the prophets and Moses Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer and and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. See, note note that while the conspiracy 
was intended to silence Paul. Wasn't that the intention? By any means necessary. The vow that those 40 plus men took was that they were going to silence Paul no matter what. So serious that they weren't even going to eat until, until it happened, until it came to fruition. They were so serious. And yet here we find Paul speaking the name of Jesus Christ, witnessing of God once again because of the help of God himself. And Paul doesn't back down. Paul doesn't remain silent. He gives God for all the glory for what God did. And he takes advantage of his helplessness by saying, I will not remain silent. And even to the face of kings, I will glorify the name of Jesus Christ. Despite what anyone thinks, I will speak the gospel. And here's the question for you. Are you conspiring against your conspirators, against the enemy? And what I mean by that is have you determined in your heart that you're going to focus your attention, full of grace, full of humility, full of helplessness, that you're going to focus your energy and attention on spending your life conspiring against the grand conspirator, against that arch deceiver, against that enemy that hates you? Are you going to devote your life to fighting against the enemy? See, are we turning Satan's conspiracy on its head? Are we conspiring against the lost world? Are we just like those conspirators in Paul's story? Are we bound together as a body of believers striving to undermine Satan's hold in this world? See, this is what our conspiracy looks like. Our conspiracy looks like we're going to gather every disciple that we can find and we are going to take Bible study to every campus and every neighborhood in this city. And no one has to like it. No one has to like it. And they can plot and they can scheme all they want, but we have an agenda. We are going to take the Bible to every corner, every nook and cranny of this city, and we are going to find young people. And we are going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. And when they come to know Jesus Christ, we're going to be faithful to disciple them. And we know in advance that the enemy will be all over it. So we posture ourselves in helplessness. And we pray to the Lord above and we say, protect us, Lord. Make us swift. Make us strong. Make us defiant. Make us suffer well. But make us effective. And will we, will we, as the young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, determined to take the gospel everywhere we go and plot and scheme and strategize and conspire against the one who would see us entrapped. See, that's a decision you make. And that's a lifestyle that you live. And it has to consume you. Because if you half-step this at all, then you will fall asleep. And you will become prey to the enemy. And he will sift you. You understand, we have an agenda. And it requires faith and devotion and humility and determination. We've got to decide. And I don't mean decide tomorrow. I mean decide today. We need to decide today. And everybody's decision might look different. And there's a lot of visitors here today. There's a lot of people that I've never met before. I'm looking around the room, and I see people that I don't know. And I want to invite you to consider something. Is it the good and the evil that you sense in this world? That you've always known about, but you haven't had the words to describe or to talk about? That's actually Satan and God at battle. That our reality, that all of history, that every moment, that every decision is part of a, of a grand chess match. 
between good and evil. And humanity sits in the middle of it. We sit in the midst of it. And the problem with humanity is that we've always convinced ourselves that if we're good enough or we make, make the right decisions in life, that somehow we will deliver ourselves from the, from the enemy that we feel within. That we somehow of our own, you know, good favor and, 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 and kindness and goodness in this world, that we somehow will escape the jaw of the lion. But that's just not true. I don't have it in me. I can't be good. I can't be religious enough. I can't be smart enough. I needed a Savior. And this is why Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, came to this earth and shed his blood that all of mankind could receive the grace of his goodness, that we could receive forgiveness once and for all, that we could once again escape the bondage of our flesh and come into right relationship with him the way Adam and Eve had before they ever sinned. That's what he's offering. That's what God's offering to us. And until you've said yes to Jesus Christ, you will remain in the midst of the, of, of the system that the enemy wants you in. He's got you right where he wants you. And you have the ability today to defy the enemy's desire for you and to choose Jesus Christ and his goodness once and for all. You can lay down your life and you can surrender and say, God, I'm helpless. I know that there's nothing good in me. I know that the wages of my sin is death, that I deserve whatever I have coming to me. God, will you extend your favor to me and let me receive your grace? God, forgive me of my sin. I desire you with all my being. You can make that decision today. And there's others in the room who call themselves Christian, but you've been, you've been enticed to fall asleep. And you're sitting at the cusp of, of being prey to the devil. And you've got a decision today, too, to repent of the way that you're going and, and turn back to the way of Jesus Christ, turn back to the word of God, turn back to reliance in him, to renew your walk, there's many in the room today that need to decide, I need to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. I, I, I need to, you know, I've been sitting and I've been hearing this and I know what I need is I need to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I need to press in further. I need to know of the goodness of God. I need to learn his book. I need to learn his word. I need to get this in me because it's the only thing that's going to make me a good soldier. It's the only thing that's going to prepare me. It's, only going to, it's the only thing that's going to give me the whole armor of God. I need it. And if that's you today, I want to call you. I want to invite you to come forward during the worship set and meet with someone and get those things right. If you, if you know what you need is salvation, come forward. Come forward. There's a room full of people that love you. Don't deny Jesus Christ. Don't deny him. He loves you. Lay yourself helpless before him. Let's go ahead and invite the worship team up. And as we do, let's, uh, let's bow our heads and let's ask the Lord to show us what we need. What truth did we need today? What truth did we need? What, what truth did you need as an individual? Let's ask God to reveal that to us right now. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we, um, we know that our, in our flesh dwelleth no good thing. And we know also, Lord, that, that the enemy desires to see us lukewarm in our behavior, unmoved by the things of Jesus Christ. He desires for the word of God to grow cold, he desires that when we wake up and we do our devotion with the Lord and we have our, our Bible open, that it would, it would feel empty. He desires that we would feel guilty over sin. He desires that we would convince ourselves that we're strong enough and smart enough and good enough 
to please the Lord. He wants to entrap us by forgetting about him. He wants to lull us to sleep to, uh, to the reality of his plans and his plot and his conspiring so that we wouldn't pray prayers of protection, so that we wouldn't pray against his devices, that we would neglect to pray before and after every gathering. He wants to make us vulnerable. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not be made dumbfounded by his work. That we wouldn't put the blinders on and lay our head down for a little nap. But Lord, we would engage fully and we would recognize that even in this room, the enemy desires to work. And that all around us, just as Ezekiel discovered for himself, when he looked into heaven, he could see all of the angelic host at war. And we know every time the gospel goes forth, there's a battle that, that wages that we can't even see. Lord, help us to be aware of the enemy in every way. And Lord, we pray that you would have your way. We're helpless to do anything against, against the enemy. But Lord, that you would win the day. And that you would take the battle. And that you would protect your people. And that you would call the hearts of men out of darkness. That you would be the light that shines into those dark places. And you, in, in the power of your hand and your might, would deliver every individual from the wicked one. Lord, we, we pray this and we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.